This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with legendary investor and CEO of Sprott US Holdings, Rick Rule. Rick is one of the greatest resource investors of all times, and I have the pleasure to talk to him today. Rick, I know that the end of the year is a busy time, and yet you were kind enough to speak to me. So thank you so much for coming to this program. Marcelo, it's a wonderful opportunity to address your audience. Thank you. Thanks. Listen, before we start this conversation, could you please tell us a little bit about Sprott? I'd be delighted to. Sprott is a Canadian domiciled and listed company. It's listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. The symbol is SII in Toronto or SPOXF in the U.S. over-the-counter market. We are a global investment and asset manager focused in natural resources and precious metals. We manage or administer about $10 billion in assets worldwide. Again, focused on natural resources and precious metals. Brilliant. Congratulations. Thank you. Moving on to the topic of this conversation, so that people can grasp the size of the opportunity that I believe lies ahead, could you please tell us how the last boom market in uranium was and the profits that were made? Well, as you know, I have very fond memories of that market. It's important to know that before the last bull market occurred, there was a very long bear market, a 15 or 20 year long bear market, uh, starting really with the Three Mile Island disaster and the Chernobyl disasters in the United States and Ukraine, respectively. So you had a commodity that was in a bear market for almost two decades. And the consequence of that is that the industry itself made very few investments in maintaining productive capabilities because they were losing so much money. Pardon me, a circumstance that we'll talk about later in this interview is one that's being repeated today. Now, by the time that that bear market had ended, the last bear market, the uranium price had fallen from about $30 a pound all the way down to $8 a pound. And uranium was selling at less than half the cost required to produce it. It was truly an industry of liquidation. Investors were either bored of an asset that had performed poorly for two decades or hated the asset as a consequence of its use in nuclear weapons and nuclear power generation. So it was, in effect, the ideal commodity for a contrarian. It wasn't just that the market was out of favor. It was, in fact, hated. Now, the truth is that irrespective of the narrative, uranium at that point in time counted for almost 19% of baseload generating capacity in the United States, which meant one of two things had to happen. Either the uranium price had to go up to the cost of production or the lights were going to go out. Those were literally your two choices. Pretty obviously, because the lights stayed on through the whole time, the uranium price went up. It went up probably further than it had to as a consequence of the very long time that had gone by since new investments in productive capacity had been made. In fact, the uranium price advanced from a low in 1998 of $8 a pound to a high in, I believe it was 2006, of about $140 a pound. What was much more dramatic than that, although that was pretty dramatic in and of itself, was the performance of those few companies that existed after a 20-year bear market in the uranium business. At the beginning of the new bull market in uranium, that is about the year 2001, there were, by Sprott's count, five junior companies, companies with less than $100 million market cap, in the uranium space, and only two senior companies in the uranium space, so seven total issuers in the market. 
the worst of the junior issuers, the worst performer in the ensuing bull market from 2001 to 2006, increased in share price 22 times. That's a 2,200% gain. The best of those, Paladin, and this is mind-boggling, advanced from one cent Australian, $10 Australian, a 10,000-fold increase. By the top of the bull market, the last bull market that we refer to, the number of companies that were at least purporting to be in the uranium business, looking for uranium, had risen from five companies to 500 companies. Literally billions of dollars were raised and mostly wasted. Fast forward, of course, and you have the tragic events at Fukushima, which brought that, bear, that bull market pardon me, to a raging halt. At the time of the Fukushima disaster, the uranium price had stabilized out at about $85 a pound and fell, subsequent to Fukushima, uh, all the way down to $17 a pound. Those numbers are important because they set in stage uh, what I think both you and I see as the sort of necessary conditions for another bull market in uranium. Brilliant. And, and you mentioned that later on we would talk about it. So later on has arrived. Great. Do you see similarities between today and 15 years ago? Marcelo, I do. First of all, the number of people that care about uranium anymore has shrunk dramatically. So nobody cares about the space. It's out of favor again. We've gone from 500 issuers looking for uranium to probably 25 looking for uranium. Maybe 10 or 12 of the juniors are viable. So that when uranium returns to favor, the opportunity set that will be available to investors will be extremely constrained. And the share prices of the existing companies, I would expect, will react fairly dramatically. More importantly, I think it's important that your listeners understand the arithmetic around the uranium bull market. The International Energy Agency tells us that the fully loaded costs produce a pound of uranium. Importantly, this includes the cost of capital and adding back prior year write-downs on unsuccessful investments exceeds 60 US dollars per pound. So the industry makes the stuff now for 20-something, 20 26, 27. They sell it for 60. They lose $30 a pound. So we're back in the circumstance now that we were in 1980, 81, 82. The choice in front of us, as Americans in particular, but as global investors too, is either the uranium price goes up or the lights go out. <laughs> yeah, I love that phrase. My suspicion is five <laughs> or six or seven years from now, for some reason, when you and I walk into rooms and hit the switch, the light's going to go on, which is going to mean that the uranium price has gone up because there's no other way to run baseload power. You know, these alternative energies are all wonderful. They're all you know, they're all gaining in currency and stuff like that. But, you know, think about uh, solar as an example. That's a big problem called night. Sure. You want 24-7 high-quality power. And I think for the next 20 or 25 years, an important part of that mix is going to be uranium. Now, what's going to be interesting with regards to this market as opposed to the last market, the thing that's going to make this market a little bit better than the last one at the beginning is there is still a very strong institutional memory about what a uranium bull market can do. In other words, there are a lot of people, not just myself, who participated in that last market and who had their greed stimulated in a profound way. Mm -hmm. My belief is that when this bull market gets going a little bit, the transferal of speculative money into the uranium, spec into the uranium space, given the incredible profits that were made in the last market, 
will mean that in the earlier stages of this bull market, it will heat up a lot quicker than it did last time. Interesting. So, uh, Rick, when we spoke in, at the beginning of the year, you said that you expect uranium price to go up. And actually, you quoted again uh, what you told me in the beginning of the year, which was um, either prices go up or the lights go out. Right. Well, that was a great call. Congratulations. We are now close to the end of the year. And uranium price did go up, but not the mining stocks. What do you think has happened? Well, two things. The uranium price went up from farcical to uneconomic. If the industry, <laughs> if, if, the, if the industry requires 60, the fact that the uranium price went up to 26 or 27 is interesting, but it's kind of not relevant. If you're a junior, you are no more able to bring a new project in production at, at uh, 27 than you were at 17. It's going to take some number, I think, like the high 30s or the early 40s before they begin to talk about moving companies forward. I will also tell you that the beginnings of this bull market in uranium, that is the beginnings of the shifting of cash back into the junior sector, will be capped a little bit because I think that you'll see all 25 companies that at least pretend to be in the uranium business using the increased market acceptance of uranium to raise capital necessary to stay alive. So I think that the first cash that comes into the sector will probably go to repairing balance sheets. You may remember that the uh, first two months of 2017 saw an astonishing little melt up in the uranium stocks. They all doubled and tripled in two or three months' time. Mm -hmm. And the consequence of that newfound interest was that the industry very, very quickly raised a couple hundred million dollars. Not a lot of money, but enough to satisfy the nascent demand that was present at the time. Uh, but I do think that you will see continued firming in uranium prices. I'm not going to say that you're going to say it in 2019 definitively. You will see it in the near term. The pace of Japanese restarts continues to increase. Or in the longer term, when new build construction, which is going on around the world, there are more nuclear plants being built now than at any time in history, but when the new builds themselves use up the surplus generated in prior markets. When that happens, I don't know. I'm constructive that it could happen in 2019, but the truth is it could be 2020 as well. Okay. Yeah, and we know that when the bull market starts, it, it takes a few years to really get traction and, and give us the returns that we are looking for. Right. Rick, and, well, I know you and Sprout have done a lot of work on incentive price for, for producers, um, and you touch this topic now, uh, and you say that the mining companies required $60 to start developing new mines and, and looking for new projects. But uh, many analysts now expect uranium price to continue to climb and maybe reach $40, $45 a pound over the next 18 months. Let's say that they are right and prices do get there. A few developers say that their projects are profitable at these levels. Do you see many projects starting to come online then? I mean, the MacArthur River might be coming online again? I don't believe that MacArthur River works at $40 a pound, $40 US dollars a pound, unless you see the Canadian dollar fall to 60. You know, <laughs> if you kept interest rates very low and you had very low Canadian dollars, <laughs> MacArthur River might work at 40 or 45. In Kai, which is the big in situ producer in Kazakhstan, certainly works at 40 to 45 dollars. But I think what you're going to see is that if the if the uranium price stays below 60, there's a lot of existing production in the world. Never mind that new stuff won't start up. You'll continue to see existing production in places like Niger and Namibia shut down. I think $60 is required not for startups, but to avoid shutdowns. Interesting. 
prices are still very depressed and well below cost of production, and as you mentioned, but we are seeing Russian and Chinese movements. So CNUC bought Rossing from Rio Tinto. The Russians yes. are signing contracts with the Middle East and South America for construction of nuclear reactors, uh, maintenance, supply of uranium, etc. Now, the U.S. produces less than 3% of its uranium demand. So I've got two questions for you. The first one, do you think the U.S. is missing something here? And the second one, how do you see the Russian and Chinese influence playing out five years from now? Well, as to the first question, my hope is that the United States does not institute protectionist legislation to increase U.S. production. It penalizes U.S. consumers. And the fact is that there is a lot of uranium available from people who have traditionally been friends of ours. And the truth is that the people who we allege haven't been good friends of ours have been very good suppliers of uranium. My personal hope is that we continue to see weapons-grade uranium blended down for power usage. That is, my hope is that the biggest uranium mine in the world continues to be the down-blending of weapons-grade uranium that we stored for the purposes of killing each other uh, and turning that into <laughs> sure. more peaceful uses. I don't see the United States as being an important supplier of nuclear fabrication and technology around the world. I see that, common, that uh, competition taking place between China, Russia, and to a lesser extent, Korea and Taiwan. And my suspicion is that the Chinese and the Russians in particular are going to cooperate more than compete. I think that you will see the Chinese active in technology transfer, and the Russians will be. I think that you'll see the Chinese as prime contractors. I think that you'll see Russia try and dominate the fuel cycle. That is all the way from raw fuel to fuel reprocessing to spent fuel storage. And I believe that you'll begin to see a sort of a hegemonistic uh, oligopoly in uranium services between China and Russia on a global basis. But that could go wrong if there was increasing tension between those two countries. Their current roles are synergistic more than competitive. I see. Do, do you think uh, that there might be a dispute for African assets between those two nations? Oh, I, I suspect that you will see a, a, a widespread competition for African assets as the uranium market normalizes. You know, France still generates almost 70% of its baseload power from nuclear, and its sources have always been uh, Africa-centric. So my suspicion is that you'll see some competition for African assets, but the Russians really don't need to compete for those assets, uh, because for Russia, given their own resources and the resources that occur in Kazakhstan, uh, they're going to have less of a need of security of supply than other places like Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and China have. Right. Drunken Miller gave an interview to Bloomberg, I think it was on the 18th of uh, December, saying that we are now in a bear market. Do you think a bear market can dampen the returns for uranium investors? I don't think an equities bear market could dampen the return. But what could dampen the return for investors, and I take this seriously, would be a global economic slowdown. You know, Marcelo, we're in year nine of a global economic recovery. It may be a tepid re recovery, and it may come off a fairly cataclysmic bottom. But I've been in investment markets now for 40 years. And by my reckoning, the economic recovery that we're in is fairly long of tooth. 
If you dramatically slowed global growth, not just U.S. growth, of course, but global growth, or if global growth went negative, that is, if we went into a recession, then the circumstance where you, A, needed more increases in power production, but B, were able to fund them, would begin to be called into question. If your listeners and readers are relatively sanguine, relatively sanguine about the strength of the global economy, there is absolutely nothing that I can think of that could derail a nuclear bull market, with the exception, of course, of another uh, reactor catastrophe. Uh, Rick, once again, many thanks for coming to this program. It was a pleasure to talk to you again, as always is. And I hope you and your family have a great 2019. Very kind of you to say. I'm wishing the same. The best of the season to you and yours and also to your listeners. It's delightful to talk to you. I look forward someday to uh, visiting you down home. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm waiting for that. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you. Cheers. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. <laughs>